This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. A ton of virus headlines today. We had New Jersey's health commissioner saying she expects the state to get a COVID-19 vaccine in late December. We also had Roche uh, being able to deliver its antibody treatments in the first quarter of 2021. We just talked about uh, the strain on hospitals that we're seeing, the number of U.S. hospital beds occupied by COVID-19 patients rising this week to the highest since April. And if you look overseas, Canada, England, Austria, also seeing some stresses. It's been a rough day, a rough week when it comes to the virus. Joining us, as he always does every Friday, and grateful that he does, is Dr. Ian Lusbader. He is Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU NYU Langone Medical Center. He is on the phone in New York City. Um, Ian, good to have you back with us. How's it going? Always a pleasure, Carol. Happy Friday. Yeah, uh, thank God. Things are going okay. Um, you know, we're seeing a lot of uh, regular patients and certainly a lot of COVID follow-up patients. Um, the number of cases in New York so far is, uh, or the number of hospitalizations, I should say, mm-hmm. is not skyrocketing. Yeah. So uh, I think uh, based on antibody positivity, which is estimated about 20%, and kind of our rough, uh, rough go in March and April, uh, although cases are up and hospitalizations are up, uh, it's certainly not, thank goodness, overwhelming the system here. So I think the Midwest um, and out West is having definitely uh, more of a challenge than we are, and we'll just have to see how, you know, how we do with that. What do you make, um, Dr. Lospeter, of, of kind of the rolling back? We're seeing it with New York City schools, um, you know, sending kids back home to do virtual learning. Uh, we're starting to see rolling back in terms of the bars, but I, I still am surprised that things are even kind of open <laughs> in that front. What makes sense to you? What doesn't? What needs to be done right now, in your view? So I think part of that increased case positivity, uh, which is really what they're basing, mm-hmm. you know, closing the schools on, may be uh, – incorrect or maybe misleading. And I think um, every state has a different threshold. So it's not like there's a certain standard of when you need to think about doing these things and really how even effective they are. I think politicians sometimes feel they have to do something uh, when really uh, sometimes that that thing is not really the best. We are doing a lot of testing. I'm seeing uh, many of my patients are either visiting or potentially traveling or just curious. And so there are a large number of tests being ordered, either the swabs or the antigen tests. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing a lot of false positives. So All initially right. someone may go for a nasal swab and antigen. You know, we know no test is 100% accurate, and then they get a follow-up PCR test that's negative. So I think we have to be very careful with this positivity rate as a threshold. And I think the data about closing schools and certainly elementary schools really supports keeping them open uh, for a variety of reasons, for the kids' education, for their mental health, for the parents' mental health. Um, And so I think we are jumping the gun here uh, incorrectly in closing schools. Uh, You could argue perhaps high schools where, where it does seem to be a little more communicable 
than the elementary schools. And I think the whole concept here of closing bars at 10 p.m. also is, is very, very confused. You know, the virus doesn't say, oh, it's 9.59, I, I better go in. So, you know, when you think about it, what we really want to do is discourage uh, potential super spreader events like bars or gyms or where people are shouting encourage people to sit outside. I think people can safely outside with heaters, mm-hmm. uh, eat and drink. Uh, and I think the schools should remain open unless there really is or, or an outbreak in that specific school of a higher number of cases. So I think it should really be individual. That's what do you think take. about what do you think about uh, kids coming home from college for the holidays? Are you concerned? Because, you know, I'm sure you've been watching the numbers, and, and I know we report on it, but, I, you know, I, I feel like I want to know. It doesn't sound like we've had, you know, isolated cases of this school and that school, but for the most part, it seems like it's gone fairly well. Yes. You know, I think it varies from school to school. Uh, mm. There are uh, schools, uh, University of Michigan, uh, where they really did have to restrict uh, any in-person classes because it was rampaging through right. uh, through the campus. Vanderbilt, uh, under control. And that's not to point at one school or another. I mean, that could be based on a lot of factors. But those kids get tested on a weekly basis, and I think they have a much better handle on things. Uh, I do think, ideally, if kids can get tested in school before they come back, and if they're negative, I think that would be a lot more reassuring. We do anticipate a a Thanksgiving bump based on traveling and kids coming back, uh, families getting together. You know, there there is a risk, and we know the cases are increasing, and they're probably going to go up a little bit more uh, within a week or two after Thanksgiving, just based on people returning home. Yeah, exactly. No, it's, you know, it's interesting. I've been watching kind of, you know, talking to different parents and what schools are doing. And um, I've been very lucky. My my daughter's school, they kind of shut things down ahead of Thanksgiving and said, you're going to stay home for a week after Thanksgiving and you're going to have to take a test before you come back, you know, because exactly. because we all understand there are going to be people who are unfortunately going to still kind of get together en masse. Um, one thing I want to ask you, and then we'll do a break and come back, but I got about 45 seconds. The task force, the White House Coronavirus Task Force, meeting again, making some comments. What was the significance of that in your view? I mean, important to keep America up to date, but I just wonder what your takeaway was. I think it is important to try to answer questions. I know there was a little bit of a hullabaloo about announcements. Overall, I think we have positive information with the vaccines. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are still some questions, remdesivir and other other issues that have come up, as outlined in Bloomberg. We can talk about that on the second part. Good. Um, but, but I think updating people is good, but you have to do follow-up questions. So, Ian, what's up with remdesivir? I thought this was like a, a, a productive treatment. Well, uh, in medicine, uh, they're often uh, conflicting or confusing results, and uh, yeah. depending on how you slice the data, uh, you can sometimes get uh, you know confusing results. Uh, and I think with remdesivir, we always knew that this was not the most potent antiviral. It was sort of the only tool in the toolkit, and typically... Um, it's used in a combination of hospitalized patients. So remdesivir was never really used for an outpatient. There is a new monoclonal antibody by Lilly that's coming out um, mm-hmm. that's been approved that uh, may be very effective sort of as a gap for outpatient use in a certain segment of, of patients. But remdesivir is o- o- always been used for inpatients, and typically it does show some benefit 
when combined with steroids and the sort of cocktail that patients have been getting when they come in, including some blood thinners. So this is really for uh, people who are sick enough to be to be admitted. But certainly when looked at alone, you know, we know that it's not uh, the strongest. And depending on when it's given, is it better early on? Is it better later on and so forth? I think there's conflicting data. And I'm not surprised that some studies at least show that it is not significantly effective. And I think it's going to be up to the individual hospitals to decide, is this worth uh, the cost? In other words, there is a certain uh, cost for the medication. um, And are uh, the doctors seeing enough of a response to warrant it? Yeah, exactly. Well, it's interesting. So what do you make, too, of everything that we've gotten? You know, you and I have talked already about Pfizer news. We got a little bit more Pfizer news about, you know, planning to apply for emergency use. Moderna also coming out. That is something that doesn't require the extreme refrigeration. I talked with the Moderna CEO, uh, Stefan Bonsell, yesterday. So I, I don't know. How do you see it? We're making progress, right? Absolutely. So on on our segment, uh, several weeks ago, yep. uh, I had reported, um, you know, that uh, the preliminary data looked very good for uh, uh, for uh, both uh, Pfizer, Moderna, uh, the mRNA uh, vaccines. Uh, the data mm-hmm. showed very high antibody responses and T-cell responses, AstraZeneca. So I think uh, our listeners uh, certainly are not surprised by this news because we we announced early on before it was released that there was certainly encouraging data. Uh, And so I think we're going to have several vaccines, all of which appear to be safe, all of which appear to be effective, not 100 percent. And again, there's individual risk. And and until those vaccines are given out and even after those vaccines are given out, it's not going to be 100 percent. And people who are still at risk. And we've talked about this, uh, lung disease, diabetes, hypertension, obesity. Uh, People at risk still need to be careful until uh, we develop enough herd immunity that there are really uh, very few cases. And that may take a while. But I think we've definitely turned uh, the corner. I think there's more good news coming with other vaccines. There's some good news about outpatient um, monoclonal antibody to spike protein. You know, all of this is expensive. This is not all going to be available for the Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, So people do need to be smart and careful. But I do think in the next few months, we will see significant improvement. You know, unfortunately, we'll be up to, you know, 300,000, you know, deaths and hospitals being overwhelmed. So this has been a rough pandemic. It's not over. There's definitely light at the end of the tunnel. Um, So we have to be very careful until we're really able to you know, distribute all of this, which is still really several months away. Well, and what's interesting, and I'm glad you said that because we heard it from Anthony Fauci and the task force yesterday. Um, I said I interviewed who is someone who has been has called the Dr. Anthony Fauci of China, Dr. Wu Zunyo. He's the chief epidemiologist at the Chinese Center for Disease Control and Prevention. Caught up with him. He too, I mean, many people are like, listen, guys, vaccine, it's not going to be here tomorrow, It's um, and especially when you think about mass distribution, and that in the meantime, it may not be the answer to everything, and that in the meantime, wear masks, social distancing, avoid those big gatherings. I mean, it really does come down to that. I know you and I have talked about it so many 100%. times, but that's just, just quickly, that's what it's about. We absolutely have to yeah. be uh, self-aware and be careful until uh, everyone gets the vaccine, right. and we have to encourage people to do that when it comes out. 
You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser on Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed. This is Bloomberg Business Week, the Friday edition. I'm Carol Masser, working from home on this Friday. Want to get into something. It was all over Bloomberg Radio today. We were talking about it, too, yesterday as well. And I'm considering it. It's a top story, no doubt about it. And it's about the battle between Mnuchin and Powell, or at least the apparent battle. We're talking about U.S. Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin and also Chairman of the Fed, Jay Powell, of course. It's over the emergency lending programs and aid to help the economy. So let's get into it with Saleya Motion. Uh, he is, uh, she is senior U.S. Treasury reporter at Bloomberg News. She is on the phone from Washington, D.C. So Saleya, lay it out for us. We kicked off our broadcast today and we, our Vince Signorella said, it's not really a spat in that you know, Mnuchin has a point here. We could use this money to help out small businesses, other businesses. So what are you seeing? Well, not only does Mnuchin have a point here, it, he is following the law, which we have seen on paper since March, that lawmakers agreed to. Every single senator voted in support of this of the CARES Act in March. Every single senator should have read every single line of the, the act that they supported. And so it said, we will be sunsetting these facilities at mm-hmm. the end of the year. Now, when the law was passed, it looked like this is just an eight-week problem. It didn't seem like this pandemic was going to go on for as long as it did. Right. But the spat kind of happens when it's the central bank itself issues and it's a um, unhappy message in response. Well, so what are you hearing? Who's right? Is there a right or wrong here? You know, I think it's also how you give information. Maybe if the secretary had uh, prepared the landscape starting in September before Election Day, before all all the polls were so set on who was going to win, who was going to lose, and said that everyone should just be aware that this is what the law says, and then we got to look at it and, you know, take all of our boxes, then maybe this uh, information, this message would have been received um, a little bit with less shock. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, that, that's a real big part of it. But markets have absorbed the message. Markets have um, recovered. Yeah. Uh, S&P 500 is relatively flat um, this morning after a lot of the news kind of came out. So, Well, and, you know, Soleil, you understand how this all works. I mean, is it the right of the Treasury Secretary to request this money back? And can he do it? Will it happen? Did yeah, it happen? Well, the, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if it will. It should. Um, he does have a right because Congress said that he needs to do this. Um, he did point out that in March, when the $500 billion was being given to Treasury, the Democrats were saying that Mnuchin was going to abuse it as a flush fund for himself. And today, um, criticism is sort of bipartisan. All Democrats are unhappy that Mnuchin wants to return the money to, from, to Congress, and all Republicans are happy that he's doing it. Um, I think this is also just a part and parcel that you know Congress just cannot agree to a stimulus, so maybe the Secretary is trying to find a way to make that happen. Right. Uh, at the same time, you can understand the Fed is in a bind already. Their toolkit is, um, you know, rates are historically low for a long time. They've expended a lot of energy on, on um, loosening the, the financial conditions. You don't know where we're headed next. So I can understand that this is a, a bit of a shock to people. Well, and it's a reminder, Saleh, listen, you understand it. You follow the Treasury. You understand how the government works, right? And the Fed is about really kind of working with making it kind of easier for lending to happen within our economy. Congress is about spending money, right? And or giving money to Americans or just small businesses. And essentially, this money could go into another round of stimulus and help out, you know, some of those small businesses, the, you know, PP money that we saw going out in that first wave of stimulus, uh, virus stimulus. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, we haven't seen another wave. You know, the Federal Reserve has been pleading for more fiscal stimulus. Uh, You have very direct comments from Chair Powell and his colleagues that it is absolutely essential to have more. Um, And it seems like Congress just has not really understood that message. So what happened? Tell me what's expected. Here we are. We're just, you know, a little less than a week out from Thanksgiving. We've got, you know, Congress, you know, in terms of recesses coming up over the holidays. What are we anticipating in some kind of relief, you know, package, another round of relief? We know that Secretary of uh, the Treasury, Mnuchin, he did kind of take some steps, right, to restart these stimulus talks, and he was talking with Democratic leaders about it. Well, he hasn't spoken to them yet um, since elections about this. So today he spoke to Senator Mitch McConnell, who is supporting the idea that we should use the Unspent Cares Act money that's already been uh, appropriated and sort of um, siphoned off to spend uh, to go ahead and find ways to to use it for targeted relief in the economy. Um, And so now they need to approach congressional leaders. Now, there's not very many uh, vote days on the calendar between now and the end of the year. At the same time... um, you know, these facilities, they sunset at the end of this year, and it's just 15 or so trading days before the next administration is sworn in. So, Uh, you know, work can happen pretty quickly. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But each day that goes by, we know it's putting more pressure, especially if you watch those virus numbers, it's putting more pressure on businesses going forward. I mean, Saleha, is there some understanding that we will get something at some point, but the real sticking point now is just whether McConnell has repeatedly, I know you and Eric Wasson have done reporting, talked about, you know, half a trillion dollars. Um, we know the Democrats have talked about $1.4 trillion or even more. Can we expect that there will ultimately be something done? It's just a matter of I, how big and the timing? We just can't bank on that. You would really? have thought this would have happened back in July yeah. or August. I mean, what is to say that they're going to do this during the lame duck period of uh, the session. I mean, especially now that um, Republicans who have been so shy to, to do more spending are saying that, well, there's a vaccine now, so maybe we need to wait and see what more or if anything more is necessary. I just, I really can't. Um, it's anyone's guess. It's a, it's a coin flip almost whether something is going to happen or not. All right. Saleh Mohsen, Mohsen, you understand the Treasury Department. You understand Stephen Mnuchin. You cover him. We've just got about 40 seconds left here. I mean, does he understand the difference between watching Wall Street and what that tells us about one thing uh, about, you know, Wall Street is not the economy. Does he understand the distinction and understand the need for more aid? Just quickly. I really do think so. He has been saying it vociferously since mm. July that more more fiscal relief is needed. And he does know that stock markets go up, they go down. But in the end, it's the economy that needs to be underpinning that, uh, that uh, market increase. I think he might be working during the holidays. I'm just going to put it out there. Saleya, <laughs> <laughs> so, thank you so much. Love your reporting. Uh, and thank you so much for getting up to date on what really is a top story on this Friday. Saleya so, Mosin, she is senior U.S. Treasury reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from the nation's capital. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. We talked about these stories this week. It's about how Joe Biden's election will undoubtedly come as a relief for international students. And then we also talked about keeping grandma safe as college kids head home for the holidays, covering it all for us, as she always does when it comes to colleges and universities. Uh, Bloomberg News, higher education finance reporter Janet Lawrence. She is on the phone in New York City. Janet, good to have you here. Uh, A great duo of stories. So let's talk about Joe Biden specifically. Um, International students, they've got to be hopeful about a new administration come January. 
Yes, uh, that is true. Um, they have seen a lot of uh, discord in the Trump administration and uh, proposals lobbed at them directly just this summer. We saw several that were concerning to them, including whether or not they would have to be deported if their, class, if their universities pivoted online, which we actually did see very early mm-hmm. on in August. And um, more, and of course, that was dropped after Harvard, MIT, and dozens of colleges and others um, sued. Uh, another proposal was to limit their length of stay. There's been proposals about H-1B visas, um, hiring skilled workers from abroad. And now that um, the Trump administration will be ending in January, of course, there's a sigh of relief from universities who often depend on international students to pay the full price. But the question is, will they want to return, given the years of unwelcoming policies and rhetoric towards immigrants under the Trump administration? And we spoke to some MBA programs, and one was really stood out, the University of Toronto, which also had an increase um, in international students at the expense of probably some U.S. schools over the years. And I spoke to one student who is from Vietnam. She earned a college degree in the U.S. She earned a master's degree in the, in the U.S. She went home to Vietnam, and when she was considering MBA programs, she didn't even bother applying to U.S. Wow. schools. She went to the University of Toronto. And as she said, Canada is a country that applauds international diversity. Compared to the U.S., Canada mm-hmm. has become more and more welcoming. So given the idea that other countries, especially Canada, have been courting international students now for years and that other um, universities within their home countries have gotten better over time, you know, it's not a slam dunk to have these international students return. And given the pandemic where there's been a, a sharp drop in international students, right. you know, we, we, we will have to wait and see, but it could be, mean a lot of money to U.S. universities. Well, it's interesting, and you include this in your story. According to a Bloomberg Businessweek Best B-Schools analysis, this is something the Businessweek is really well known for, is their analysis and tracking of business schools around the globe. But their analysis of the magazine's top 20 U.S. schools, foreign students making up 29.5% of the class that began at elite schools in August or September, down from almost 35% two years ago. You know, it's interesting. I think about the broadcast that we did um, in honor of the Columbia Business School, uh, one of the top-ranked schools, business schools by Bloomberg Businessweek magazine. James Gorman, we caught up with, you know, from Australia. He's now a U.S. citizen, but talked about coming in, you know, coming to the United States, coming to New York, what that was like. And then the conversations that he had, he said, with a very eclectic and international student body. So this is important to the schools, kind of their culture. Yes. And of course, in addition to the revenue, they bring a diversity of ideas Mm -hmm. and thought. And um, employers love to hire um, international graduates from U.S. business programs because when they want to um, immediately put people around the world, it's not an issue for international students because they already have a lot of experience living abroad. So it's going to see we'll, we'll have to see what happens because there's yeah. other choices. Of course, with the pandemic, there's already been a sharp curtailing of international students. And, um, you know, we'll just have to wait and see. All right, so Charlie and I had some fun with this yesterday, Janet. To be fair, um, Charlie playing Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer. Grandma has enough problems around the holiday season, right, that they don't have to worry about or shouldn't have to worry about their college grandkids coming home and infecting them with COVID. You wrote about this. Yes. Um, in fact, uh, the University of Arkansas's 
football coach even made a video um, telling students to mask up, get tested now, and protect your family and friends. Let's make sure we keep grandma safe at Thanksgiving. And the University of Arkansas is one of a very handful of uh, colleges that are actually allowing kids to come back after Thanksgiving. So the question is, what do you do? And there really is no great answer because almost every itinerary raises a risk somewhere. If, you're, if your student is flying home, um, that potentially could have a risk. We had a, a, a young lady at the University of Vermont who's coming home um, to New Jersey, but she's never driven that long by herself. So yeah. she enlisted somebody to drive with her. And, you know, where she's been in school at the University of Vermont, they've been doing testing every week. So her family felt comfortable with that. But, you know, it's just not a great situation. Yeah, exactly. Hey, just quickly, 20 seconds. Do you think international students, what are you hearing? Are they going to be back in the fall or it might take a while for them to warm up back to uh, U.S. colleges and universities? Just quickly. Uh, we'll, we'll be getting some application data in the next couple of months and we'll have a better sense. But of course, it's always also going to depend on any travel restrictions. Yeah. All right. There's still that to think about. All right, Janet, always great to check in with you. A couple great stories. Check her out on Twitter at Twitter, excuse me, at Janet Lauren. Of course, Janet Lauren, our high, higher education finance reporter at Bloomberg News with us once again on the phone from New York City. I'm driving in my car. I'll turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, we're just about 12 minutes away from wrapping up the trading week. Uh, stocks bouncing around. We took a leg lower. Now we're bouncing off our lows. We're still a little bit lower uh, on this Friday session. Let's do the drive to the close. And great to have back with us once again is Aaron Kennan, co-founder, chief executive officer at Clear Harbor Asset Management. Roughly uh, $800 million in assets under management. He joins us once again on the phone from Stanford. Hi, Aaron. How's it going? Great. Great to join you, Carol. What's the week been like? <laughs> well, it's... you know, it's interesting. It, it, you know, if you look at top-line ind- indices, not mm. much has happened, but certainly we've seen uh, massive news flow on the vaccine front, on the geopolitical front, on the economic front, and even the sector rotation that has uh, occurred within the market has been somewhat significant with most sectors that have been underperforming year-to-date, really outperforming somewhat dramatically this week and, frankly, even even month-to-date. So mm. it's certainly been an interesting week. So like value at small caps? Sm- small caps value, but at a sector level, for example, as you know, technology has been mm. the great outperformer this year, along with consumer discretionary and communications. And, and uh, on a month-to-date basis, uh, energy, financials, industrials, all the laggards on the year have really had a, a massive move. Um, uh, energy's up almost 18%. I think financials are up almost 13%. Yeah. Uh, materials are up 10 So um, we're, we're, we're starting to see some of that rotation. The broadening of the market is certainly somewhat welcome here. I was just going to say, though, and it's also welcome in terms of if you're looking at it as a technician or from a fundamental perspective, that's what you want to see, right? The market widening out in terms of the gains. 
That's right. I mean, I think that that's absolutely right, and and we're seeing. It. And the question is, is it sustainable? Is it real? Um, <laughs> is it is it real? Um, I think part of the the lead to this broadening is the growth that we've seen in in China, which is now a massive allocation to the emerging markets index. Uh, China tends to lead the the, the global growth story, mm-hmm. and then of course the, the positive COVID news and. Um, it's just wonderful news uh, on the health front, but also on the economic front. Uh, it gives us some window into when we should expect to see GDP growth accelerate again. And I think the distribution of that uh, vaccine from Pfizer, AstraZeneca, and Moderna, I think you're going to have the CEO on shortly, uh, mm-hmm. the, the timing of that distribution, the, the size of the distribution over the course of any given week or month will be key to how consumers uh, react to uh, to, to, to that and to the economy and how their, how their consumption patterns evolve into 2021. So that, that's key. So what's on the mind of the investors, your investors specifically? Um, I know that there was a study of some institutional investors. I had another market guest on recently this week who did a call with money managers and he said they were just so optimistic that it made me nervous. So I do wonder what you're hearing. Are people more cautious? Are people more optimistic? Do they feel like we have more visibility into 2021? Um, What are you hearing? Is there kind of a theme there, Aaron? Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of the institutional side of the market is more bullish now um, than they have been in quite some time. I think Bank of America came out with a report earlier in the week that spoke to that. I would say at the high net worth level, at the individual and family level, there's still a a lot of sort of disbelief that we sit here today uh, and equity markets, uh, both home and abroad, are for the most part up. Now, they've been led, of course, by the mega cap technology names, and so it has not been a broad-based rally. But nonetheless, the indices are higher uh, on the year, and I think it's becoming a little bit of a show-me story. I would also say because this is um, an unprecedented uh, year, not only in that we have an election, but we have this sort of – uh, friction around the transition of power after the election. There's uh, certainly some clients that are are more concerned than, than perhaps the market seems to be mm. about how that's going to play out. All right. So it's interesting, too. Um, I'm just looking at some of the stories that I was kind of reading in this morning. And one is from um, one individual, one investor who, who spent uh, 14 years uh, at the uh, head of, let me just see, the OECD, forgive me, I just couldn't read it. Uh, and the, he said, <laughs> there's, if you could see my desk right now at home, it's a mess. Um, but he talked about the global economy could be facing a make-or-break moment in the COVID-19 pandemic as government's ability to cover the mounting costs nears its limits. We are, safe to say, Aaron, at this interesting point where We've gotten some aid, but we're now in second, third waves globally uh, when it comes to the virus. And I do feel like there is that disconnect between what you're seeing in Wall Street uh, and then what you're seeing by many Americans, by many small businesses. And so I do wonder, you know, that make or break moment, will it be a good one ultimately or will it be a bad one? Well, we're, well, that's a great question. I think in the uh, short term, the stimulus We'll most likely continue. We'll debate about the timing of that, but we've seen the monetary side. Uh, the spigot's been open. We've increased our uh, balance sheet at the Fed by three and a half trillion dollars this year. Mm-hmm. But to the point of that individual that you just referenced, um, certainly the long-term 
uh, concern that, that we have here at Clear Harbor, that I have personally, is the degree to which debt-to-GDP levels, both at the public sector here in the United States and around the world, as well as even at the corporate level, are going to start to represent headwinds to long-term growth. And, and what will trend growth look like 10 years forward rather than 10 years past? And I think it's a real uh, concern uh, in the midst of this moment. Sure, we needed to spend capital and we needed to, the Fed to put their foot on the gas pedal to overcome the COVID virus. But, um, but what are the long-term consequences to right. that? Well, as someone who runs a business, right, you know, you're watching the markets, you're investing, you have clients, you have employees, you run a business. I mean, are you more on the cautious side and want to conserve capital at this point? Uh, You know, or are you thinking, okay, wait a minute, I'm starting to get a feel of what 2021 is like, and I can start to think about some of my strategic measures that I want to implement? Right. I mean, I think you always need to have a plan and you need to have a process um, in, in any business and you need to manage your growth. Um, growth for growth. But you know what I'm be, saying. Like, do you feel confident enough to say, you know what, we've been thinking about doing this. We were going to do it pre-COVID. We put it on hold. Now we're going to do it. Right. You know, I, I do think 2021 is still a year in that regard of, of, a, of a question mark. Mm. The timing of the trajectory of growth, the degree to which the transition is a success, um, who wins the Georgia race, will this impact taxes and regulation? I have views on all of these things, mm. but I think that there, there's a lot, there's a significant tail risk around you know, some, of, some of these questions, and uh, certainly I think they're impacting capital expenditures, and you're seeing that. Um, you know, capital outlays have remained uh, depressed, not just this month and due to the election, but frankly, for, for a long time now. Yeah, it's it's been kind of, I feel like, an old story, right? But it's just pretty amazing um, that uh, in terms of capital expenditures, companies continue to rate it in. Hey, Aaron, thank you so much. Have a great, great weekend. Aaron Ken- uh, Kennan, co-founder, chief executive officer at Clear Harbor Asset Management, roughly $800 million in assets under management, with us once again from Stanford, Connecticut. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.